You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard joins Washington Post Live to discuss the global education crisis and why it should matter to the U.S. and the rest of the world. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Post. Today on our continuing series, The Path Forward, my guest is Julia Gillard, who was Prime Minister of Australia from 2010 to 2013. Since 2014, Prime Minister Gillard has been chairman of the Global Partnership for Education, which is working to help millions of children in developing nations. Uh, Prime Minister, if I may call you Julia, uh, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, David. Great to be with you. It's, it's good to have you. This is a, a big day for uh, you and, and for the world with the G7 meeting in, in London. Uh, what I read from the news releases is that uh, UK Prime Minister and the host of the uh, G7 summit, Boris Johnson, made a pledge today of 430 million pounds uh, to your global partnership for education and other uh, EU nations have also made commitments. Just tell us a little bit about what's happened today and where you are on your goal of raising $5 billion for uh, the partnership's uh, broader work. Uh, thank you very much, David. Yes, we are on a campaign to raise $5 billion US to support the work of the Global Partnership for Education over the next five years. Uh, the uh, end for that uh, pledging moment is actually at the end of July. We have a global education summit being co-hosted by Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Kenyatta of Kenya uh, in London on the 28th and 29th of July. So that will be the culmination of this funding campaign. But today's G7 meeting was an important staging post along the way. And Prime Minister Johnson did take the opportunity to show his hand as to how much the UK will pledge. And you're right, he said £430 million. Uh, so we are delighted to see the UK uh, pledge that amount now as a way of rallying other nations. Uh, yesterday, the European Commission also made its pledge, uh, which totals up to around 850 million US dollars. Uh, we are expecting other donors to make pledges between now and July, with many leaving it until the actual summit itself. I should say, David, that pledges that come in tend to come from donor nations, they're through overseas development aid budgets, though we do attract some money from private philanthropy. But another important part of GPE's work is when we have a summit like the one in July, developing countries themselves come and make pledges about their own education expenditure. So how much money will their nation devote to the task of educating every child? And that's important because without those pledges, of course, we could see some sort of substitution effect, international dollars going in as domestic dollars come out. Uh, but because we do both sets of pledges, we can put them together and know that we are truly growing resources. Well, congratulations on the, on the pledges that you received today. I also note that you had an op-ed piece in The Guardian this morning with Dominic Robb in which you argued that this is such a severe pr problem in terms of 
global education that we're in danger of having a lost generation of children. I found that quite haunting. Could you tell us a little bit about the arguments you made in that piece? And then I want to, after, after that, ask you a little bit about this, the scene at the G7 seven gathering. Sure. Uh, what we are very fearful of is that the pattern of the pandemic's effect on education will be like that of earlier health crises. So we know, for example, when Ebola hit a number of nations in Africa and schools understandably had to close because of the health emergency, when schools were ultimately reopened, the most marginalised children didn't make it back to school, uh, particularly the girls, many of whom had been subject of child marriage, uh, some of whom had gone on to child labour, uh, some families had uh, decided that they would keep their girls home from school on domestic labour in order to free up an adult to go and engage in some sort of economic activity. So seared by that experience, when the pandemic started and at the height of it, 1.6 billion children were out of school, schools were closed, uh, the Global Partnership for Education quickly mobilised to try and maintain educational continuity in very poor countries where there, there is an access to the technology we're using now, where solutions have to be different, but also to enable schools to be ready to go when they were reopening so that they could get every child back into the school community. And that is a vital piece of work. But even if we do that, David, of course, that doesn't fix all problems because we went into this pandemic with 250 million children on the planet of school age, not in school, and hundreds of millions more were in school, but either for such a short amount of time or their schools were of such poor quality that they didn't even acquire basic foundational skills like literacy and numeracy. So we knew we had a big education challenge before the pandemic. We're clearly worried it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. And that's why we are so focused on mobilising these new resources to make sure that instead of a dark and dim future that we can get out there and to use the words of Prime Minister Johnson from today's summit, build back better. Build back better is, is certainly the, the theme of, of this year uh, here in Washington as, as well. That, that number you used, 1.6 billion children out of school is so striking. I think uh, parents, grandparents like me, siblings, uh, almost all of us have had the sense of how severely education has been disrupted for children in developed as well as developing countries. I was looking at some UNESCO numbers published last month. Schools closed countrywide in 26 countries, partially opened in 55 countries. 90% uh, of the world's school-aged children have had their education disrupted. Just incredible uh, uh, numbers. And I want to return to this question of the long-term damage of what we've just lived through and the ways in which that damage can be best uh, remediated, ameliorated by things that we can do that your partnership is trying to do. Explain those to us. Yes, certainly. I mean, we are seeing that the educational impacts of the pandemic 
uh, flow across existing lines of inequality. So yes, it's been difficult for everyone when schools have been closed and there's had to be homeschooling, even for the highest income households in a country like the United States. Homeschooling has brought uh, additional pressures onto the burden, uh, onto the already overburdened shoulders of parents. And I'm sure many parents have got tales to tell about how hard homeschooling was. But in higher income environments, that has been mitigated by the ability of schools to keep educational continuity happening using video conferencing and the like. Yet, even in countries like the US, the UK, Australia, we know school closures have disproportionately affected the learning of children who are already in disadvantaged groups, whether that's disadvantaged uh, because of income or disadvantaged because of race or some other characteristic. And then if you pull the lens out and look globally, then it's true to say as well uh, that the burden of this has fallen disproportionately on the most disadvantaged children who didn't have some ready-made solution when schools closed. So what can we do? Well, we need to double down on the work that has shown progress and did show progress before the pandemic. And that work is uh, being there with developing countries planning whole school systems. You know, a whole school system has to work if you are going to include every child. You can't just build a school here, train a teacher over there, worry about a textbook over here. The whole has to come together in a well-planned system. And that's what the Global Partnership for Education does. And then the resources have to be mobilised to realise the implementation of the plan and to stock take at every stage that you're on course for implementation. And that's what we do at the Global Partnership for Education. We can show dividends from that kind of approach, uh, more children in school and more children learning. A fully resourced GPE with uh, five billion of funds will be able in this period, even in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, to get 88 million more children into school, disproportionately girls, as well as improve the learning outcomes of hundreds of millions more. I should make the point that the US, of course, is not a bystander in this. Uh, the US has been a long-term member of the Global Partnership for Education, and we are asking the US to make an ambitious multi-year commitment uh, to our work, particularly uh, given the extra burdens that are being faced because of the pandemic. Do you have any sense, uh, Julia, from your conversations with the Biden administration of what the level of commitment that might be with the UK pledging over 400 million pounds, substantial commitment from the EU? What, what, what are you looking for from the US? We uh, don't know the number yet, and we certainly understand that, you know, there's a setup time for a new administration. Of course, uh, Samantha Power has uh, very recently gone into USAID, and so some work has to be done. Uh, but we are very confident that President Biden, uh, that Samantha Power, that the administration generally understands that we've got, you know, interrelated problems out there in the world. Yes, we've got to vaccinate the whole world because none of us are safe from COVID-19 until all of us are safe. But alongside that, if we're going to make a difference for peace and prosperity, then we do have to be investing in education. And the evidence is unambiguously clear 
uh, that the key for economic development long term is greater skills in the workforce that takes you back to education and a key development tool for change is investing in girls. A girl who is educated will go on to become a woman who can generate uh, economic returns. She'll be out there in the labour force, able to support her family and her community. The evidence also shows that she is likely to choose to marry later, to have fewer children. Her children are more likely to survive infanthood. They're more likely to go to school and they're more likely to be vaccinated. Uh, and so this is the upward cycle of development, of peace and prosperity that we want to get the world on. So that's a, a, a powerful agenda. I want to ask you, because you have been uh, successful today in in pushing your goals with the G7 as you as you hope to be. What the mood is like at this gathering? Were, were you able to meet uh, over the last uh, day or two with with uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, or other G7 leaders? What's your sense of how this gathering is going? Uh, I last saw uh, Prime Minister Johnson a few weeks ago. We visited a school together in Durham and had a very delightful morning talking to not only local children, but we were hooked up with a classroom in Kenya uh, where President Kenyatta was, and we were able to talk back and forth with the children there. Uh, one of the children asked Prime Minister Johnson what his uh, favourite subject was at school, and he said uh, studying Latin and the classics. So I think that caused a bit of amusement. Uh, amongst children, uh, both in Durham and in Kenya. Uh, but we were able, uh, when we were together, for me to get a very clear sense that uh, Prime Minister Johnson was absolutely focused on, on ensuring that despite the multiple challenges on the table at this G7, uh, that there would be a focus on girls' education. And of course, we're grateful for that. I mean, this meeting is at an extraordinary time. Uh, where you know many of our nations are looking for the days beyond the pandemic. Uh, we've got access to vaccines. Uh, communities are starting to get to the stage that they can open up. But we know right around the world that that is not the circumstances in which so many are living. For many countries, the height of the pandemic, illness and disease is still with them. Uh, so I can understand that each of the leaders at the G7 uh, has felt uh, very strongly uh, the importance of discussing and collaborating to get vaccines out there and to get economic growth, uh, as well as to deal with some of the longer term issues uh, that, you know, education and putting money into education now makes a difference to. And then, of course, the challenge of climate change uh, is there very clearly. And uh, a number of groups have gathered in Cornwall today, uh, protest groups of uh, various dimensions, but a number of them have been very clearly uh, putting the climate change agenda to leaders. One of the interesting aspects of this year's uh, G7 is that uh, Prime Minister Johnson invited Australia as a guest, uh, an observer, uh, as it were, along with uh, India and South Korea. Do you think that's a good idea? And I'm wondering whether you think the G7 really needs to be expanded. We already have a G20, but do we need something that, that's intermediate in a sense that would bring Australia in as a regular member? 
Well, I guess from the perspective of my nation, uh, irrespective of who's in government, we've uh, always taken the view that uh, if there's a gathering of leaders where we can make a difference and put a perspective about what ought to be happening globally, then we should be there. And I'm sure uh, Prime Minister Morrison is very pleased to have been invited to the G7. Uh, I, you know, believe that each of these bodies can have their role. Uh, the G20 was pivotal uh, to the economic coordination that was needed in the face of the global financial crisis, the uh, huge economic crash of 2008. Uh, and so, you know, I would want to see the world continuing to invest in the G20. But it does seem to me to make sense when the G7 meets to uh, not only have the nations who have historically been there, uh, but from time to time to include others. As we talk about the education of, of girls, uh, I have a special question that's on the minds of many Americans as we contemplate the withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan, and that's the future of women's education and women's rights generally in Afghanistan. I'm sure you've thought uh, deeply about this over many years. Speak just a little bit about the concerns you have and what organizations like yours, but really all of us uh, through our governments can do to try to make sure that there are not sharp reversals for, for women and girls in Afghanistan. I too uh, very much uh, think about this and I reflect back to the days that I travelled to Afghanistan as Prime Minister. I went on uh, more than one occasion. We of course had Australian troops there in uh, the NATO ISAF coalition, the broad coalition that was uh, fighting in Afghanistan and a number of Australians lost their lives in Afghanistan during those years. At the same time, we were uh, contributing to aid and development works, including to girls' education. And in the years since, through the Global Partnership for Education, I've seen uh, you know, things happen in Afghanistan that make a real difference. Afghanistan's been a long-term GPE partner. Uh, we've been investing uh, in education there, including in uh, facilities like uh, se secondary schools for girls where the uh, teaching workforce are female because uh, families are more likely to send their girls to school, particularly adolescent girls, if they will be taught in an environment where there are only women present. Uh, we've been putting the case uh, throughout Afghanistan for ensuring that girls are allowed to participate in school and not kept at home. Uh, yes, it's very distressing to think that those hard-won gains could be pushed backwards. And I think as we contemplate the future of Afghanistan, uh, of course, we as a global community uh, have to step up in the aid and development work that can make a difference and can help shape the future there. I don't think that we should uh, conclude that somehow this is all hopeless now. I do think active engagement, questing engagement, uh, that enables uh, resources to be brought to bear for things like uh, girls' education can make a difference. And that's been uh, our experience at GPE. I want to ask you one more question about the, the G7. A major uh, commitment from the Biden administration was its offer of 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine that's been matched by other G7 nations. Uh, it's a significant sign of, of a commitment 
uh, to greater health equity uh, around the world. Uh, but I, I'm curious what, what you think needs to be done beyond that. Um, if we see this uh, as the beginning of a, of a greater uh, commitment by the developed uh, countries to, to the whole world's health and security, what are the next things that would be on your agenda? There is a lot to be done here. I mean, urgently getting vaccines uh, out around the world is the first step. And so I am very pleased to see the announcements that have been made at the G7. I mean, we all know that if a large uh, part of the world remains un unvaccinated and consequently there's large amounts of virus in circulation, uh, they are the conditions that can lead to virus mutation. And of course, the horror story there would be a virus mutation that enables it to escape current vaccines. So uh, this is in all of our interests in the most hard headed sense, uh, let alone the moral sense about wanting to do the best by uh, humanity in general. Uh, but this is uh, not going to be one shot. It's not just going to be getting vaccines around the world now. Uh, we are going to have to. Uh, through in the years to come, uh, be in a position where vaccines can continue to be distributed. Uh, that requires some complex thinking about where manufacturing capacity is going to be, uh, how that can be developed and realised, supported and sustained, uh, so that it is there to enable uh, vaccines that have to be tweaked over time because of mutations to be made available quickly. As important as the vaccines are, it's not all about vaccines. Uh, there's uh, also been developments in therapeutics, which have, uh, in countries that have had access to them, uh, meant that someone who gets a very severe version of the disease is more likely to survive it. Uh, in countries like the UK, Australia, the US, uh, the death rate for people who ended up in hospital, ended up on ventilation, has gone down over time because therapeutics have come on stream. Uh, there is, of course, the uh, agenda about continuing to invest in the further development of therapeutics and making sure that they too are equitably distributed. A couple of questions for you uh, as a former pr Prime Minister of Australia, starting with China. Uh, just uh, reading back a little bit, uh, I, I see that when you were uh, Prime Minister, China, is, is, uh, for, for every Australian Prime Minister in, in recent years, was a key issue. You did some things that uh, upset the Chinese, uh, working with President Obama to station Marines in Darwin uh, is, is one that we remember. Uh, and also, if I'm not mistaken, you were early to ban Huawei from your networks uh, in Australia. But at the same time, you tried to keep working with China on, on some mutual goals. Can I ask you, uh, as you reflect on your time as prime minister and on what's happened since then, what do you think it's possible uh, for Australia or indeed for any uh, democratic country these days to take a, a middle path with China or whether that's become more difficult, uh, that the Chinese have become uh, more aggressive and assertive in ways that make it harder to, to, to make, make the compromises that you might otherwise want? I think this is a more difficult world in all sorts of ways. Um, one of the things that's possibly made it more difficult uh, is if you uh, live in uh, our region of the world, uh, then uh, understanding uh, China's uh, long-term strategy is pivotal to your leadership of your nation, but so is understanding the United States' long-term strategy. 
and uh, at the risk of uh, making a partisan comment, uh, one of the things that I think was very difficult for Australia to assess and calibrate, and indeed many other countries in the region during the years of the Trump administration, was what was the plan, what was the strategy, what was driving it. Uh, President Obama made very clear that he wanted to pivot to Asia. Uh, now people will have their uh, criticisms about how successful the pivot was and whether the full promise of it was delivered, but at least the strategic calculus was clear. And so uh, I think first and foremost, uh, the Biden administration um, it obviously understands all of this and it will be very clear about its strategic calculus in the region. Uh, with that clarity, then nations like Australia can uh, make decisions. They, they know where China's gonna go. They know what the US is trying to do. Uh, obviously, we're a long-term ally of the US, but we uh, have to make our uh, decisions living in our region of the world as a nation state. And for Australia, I think this will always be a mix of standing up for our values and things that are in Australia's interest, uh, standing alongside the US on alliance relationships, like having the Marines training in Darwin, uh, but also seeking to constructively engage with China uh, diplomatically, economically, people to people in education at depth uh, to try and have the best possible mutual understanding and the best possible relationship. When I was in Australia several years ago, uh, Julia, I, I wrote uh, a column saying Australia had a, a problem that its heart was with the United States, but its wallet was in Asia, uh, <laughs> close to China. Is that fair? And uh, is that just something you're gonna have to live with? Uh, a, a, a little bit fair and a little bit unfair, a little bit unfair to the United States in the sense that the uh, economic relationship we have with the United States, particularly by the time you calibrate in investment, uh, as well as uh, trade in goods and services, uh, is a very uh, deep and strong relationship. Uh, but it's right in the sense that, you know, a huge percentage of our exports obviously goes to our own region of the world. Indeed, a very sizable percentage goes to China itself. Uh, and I, you know, think, yes, that, that means Australia has to think these things through, but actually so does the whole world. Uh, you know, not every nation is as deeply economically engaged with China as Australia is, but the global economy is a very interconnected economy. The US economy is interconnected with the Chinese economy. Uh, this is a, a different context. I mean, I think people throw around the terminology Cold War uh, from time to time. Uh, but a very big difference from the uh, old days of the Cold War of the US and the Soviet Union uh, is way back then, uh, economies weren't interconnected. I mean, what happened in the Soviet economy had no real ramifications for the United States. Uh, that is not where anybody is with China today. So we do need a new set of tools and some different ways of thinking uh, rather than just scrubbing off some uh, you know, Cold War rhetoric and thinking that it's going to fit uh, current circumstances. That's well, well said. Uh, another uh, question for an ex-Prime uh, Minister. President Biden uh, meets next week with Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's a meeting uh, of, of some significance given recent uh, Russian aggressive actions. I'm wondering what your measure would be for success of that meeting? What would you like to see come out of it? 
I think in an engagement with uh, President Putin, uh, ultimately, uh, you know, President Biden will do this, I'm sure, uh, stand his ground and make his case very clear. Uh, and, you know, uh, hopefully uh, what comes out of it is a, a way of uh, continuing to press the issue, that it's not uh, sort of strong words and nothing moves forward, but strong words, hopefully, with a pathway to keep pushing the issues forward. I don't underestimate the difficulties of doing that. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think um, everybody in the world would probably realise that ultimately President Putin is someone who uh, respects uh, strength and will only respond uh, if uh, issues are put pretty plainly. Um, and with some force in the diplomatic exchanges with him. And the last question for you uh, today, on the day the world's uh, leaders are meeting for the, the G7 uh, conference, the Biden administration's theme has been that America is back. It's back to its traditional uh, leadership role. Uh, I'm curious whether you and, and others you speak with in Australia and around the world um, feel that that's entirely so, or there remains a concern that the sharp uh, populist explosion that created the Trump presidency uh, remains a, a concern that uh, that going forward you're going to worry about? I think around the world people still uh, worry about, uh, you know, US politics, the hyper-partisanship in the US, the uh, seeming uh, continuing inability for Congress to come together even over national interest goals, uh, and what that might mean for long-term electoral prospects, um, not necessarily the return of President Trump himself, but that politics clearly uh, hasn't uh, completely vanished out of the US landscape. And so I think allies and friends of the US around the world are concerned about that and would obviously want to see a United States that is uh, more unified and more able to get big things done with political consensus from uh, if not everyone, uh, at least enough of both sides of the aisle. Uh, so some of the things that the US has been famous for in the past, finding those compromises, uh, that that can come back into more political fashion than it's been in recent years. Uh, having said that, I think the Biden administration has obviously been welcomed with open arms around the world uh, because people know that this is an administration where uh, what you see is what you get. And uh, when President Biden speaks, that there will be clarity, there will be follow through, uh, the US will have a clear strategy and you don't have to worry about uh, unpredictable reversals uh, in policy or, um, you know, uh, odd things happening, if I can use that terminology. Um, you know, as important as the US is, and it is incredibly important, uh, obviously uh, the Trump administration and where the US has been has been one big factor in the world. Uh, there are other big factors changing the world. We've talked about one, uh, the comparative uh, strength of China and its diplomatic outlook. Uh, of course, uh, how technology is continuing to remake uh, information streams, the power of technology companies, uh, the remaking of the world of work, uh, all of these things are being experienced by nations everywhere. And so I think how the US navigates this new environment. So the US is back, uh, but back in an environment that is complex, fragmented, 
uh, and where showing American leadership uh, is, you know, not as easy uh, as, as uh, you know, it might look because every issue uh, is a complicated one. The pandemic's complicated, climate change is complicated, uh, the ongoing uh, structures of the world in terms of diplomatic architecture are complicated, uh, the geopolitics is complicated and so on. Prime Minister Julia Gillard, thank you for joining us on a big day, the G7 summit, and a big day for your global partnership for education with significant pledges. We hope that continues. We're really grateful to you for joining us today on Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. Great to have been with you. So uh, today at two o'clock, my colleague Michael Duffy will be here for an interview with novelist James Patterson. You're going to want to hear about James Patterson's uh, co-author, uh, former president named Bill Clinton. Uh, enjoy that. Enjoy the weekend. We'll see you soon on Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.